Welcome back to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Pagani, joined alongside the athletic associate editor and culture contributor, Julian McKenzie. Julian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you for having me on the uh, the podcast. Uh, you seem to be pretty impressive with all the, the guests you've had on so far. This is, I feel pretty special. This is pretty cool. You, you want me on the same podcast you've had like James Duffy on. Like, that's Yeah. Well, see, you know, I'm I'm really looking to interview basically about anyone and everyone that I can. That's cool. That that's good. And the fact that you're not even in university yet, like you're you're ahead of the game. Because there's a lot of people who go to like journalism school and university, and like they they just think they can just do classes and not put themselves out there and just be like, hey, give me a job. But that's not how that works. So I really admire your initiative. And, you know, you always got to put the work in to really see the results and see how you've grown. Like, you know, if I were to listen to a podcast of mine, let's say a year ago, or, you know, I interviewed Eric Engels and that was, uh, you know, that's one that I highlight because Good that people. one was really, yeah, no kidding. That one was really choppy and, you know, there wasn't really much structure to it, but, you know, I've kind of worked on it and I've tried to add the flow and structure to what a regular normal sounding podcast would sound like. Yeah, that's good. And that's going to come with practice, man. Like so many people think like, all right, I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to do it with like my buddies. It's going to be cool. And then after like five, six episodes, it's like, man, I don't have the time and like, whatever, like I've got to have the drive, you know, or sure, whatever stuff comes up. Like I get that could happen. But like in terms of like wanting to do podcasts and being good, like you got to wait till you get to like 50, 60, 70 episodes, man. Like me and, and my friend Tristan Damour, we have a podcast called The Scrum. And like, it took us like, I mean, we had done like a podcast before that podcast. But like, I would probably think it took us like, maybe like a small handful of episodes before we started to really feel comfortable just doing a thing where it's just us two. Because before we did, we had this other podcast through the uh, student newspaper we were working at, at the time called the link it was called the press box hat trick podcast it'd be me him and another friend of mine vince uh morello it took us about 20 30 maybe even more podcasts before we felt comfortable with being able to host the show like that and also the quality of the show only really started to go up after we had done that handful of shows so we had that background and then tristan and i we just needed that little like grace period at the beginning and then we started to get ourselves going man so podcasting and hosting and stuff that's not something that you just pick up and you're immediately good right away like you're you're getting you try you got to get as much reps as you can to make yourself better I, i just did a whole week of radio at tsn 690 and the whole time i was there i was like okay like I feel comfortable doing these things, but like, man, I, I, I gotta work on my teases. I gotta, I gotta know how to go into break. Like I gotta do all these things, right? Like there's so many things that I know if I get more reps, I'll get a lot better at. So uh, kudos again to you for, for trying to get your, what is it like 10,000 hours? I think that's what uh, Malcolm Gladwell says, like, but you're trying to get your hours into, to see to it that you can be a good podcaster, man. So full marks. And the one thing about hosting there, oh, well, firstly, thank you. But yeah, when you're hosting with TSN 690, you want to make sure that the listener, you know, doesn't tune away to a different radio station. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Like, I was just, you know, it's funny, actually. I just got back from doing my my final show uh, guest hosting that week. And one tip I only got, and I wish I caught it at the beginning of the week, was just like, they say, like, when you're doing teases into the next segment or whatever, like, they say, don't take breaks so don't say like we're gonna take a break or we're gonna take a short break because that's that's also like a kind of like a vocal cue Mm -hmm. to tell the listener like yeah uh okay so this guy's gonna take a break i'm gonna take a break and go off the radio station because you don't want 
the listener to go off the radio station. You want to keep them waiting from one topic to the next. So I wish I knew that at the beginning of the week, but I, I realized now, like I was saying, like, take a break, take a break. And I'm like, okay, I don't need to do that. I just need to find another way to seamlessly transition from one segment to the other. But that comes with reps. That comes with practice. Well, getting into the interview portion here, uh, you know, my first question to you would be, how has your mental health been impacted by the pandemic, if, you know, if it has at all? Um, Man, like, I think the first half of the, it's weird to say first half of the pandemic, I think of it, I think for me, I think of it in two, I guess, because like, from March of last year, I guess, to the end of 2020, um, it was at a really weird place, considering that um, about like a week before the pandemic started, I had gotten a gig with the Canadian press. I had been a stringer with them for quite some time. And, uh, I got bumped up to being a part-time editor. So I'd be working weekends on their sports desk. And then I went to like one or two shifts, uh, in their Montreal office. And then the pandemic hit and I was forced to work from home. And I was also working as a weatherman at CTV at the time. And I thought I'd be working a whole bunch of shifts throughout the diff throughout the year. Uh, but they ended up kind of being cut down again because of the pandemic. Um, so it was a bit weird just trying to make sense of what was going on and, and sports being canceled. I was wondering, okay, when are, when are all the sports going to come back? Because that was also something to, to worry about and just trying to maneuver through all that and uh, not being as active as I would have liked, you know, I like kind of going out and about and, and being with friends and stuff. Like I don't, I'm not like the most like, like in shape person. I, I think I've kind of lost a bit of shape, but lost uh, that, that fitness and form over the last year or so. But I liked kind of being out and, and, and just being active and just meeting people and just doing things that I couldn't even do that throughout much of last year. So it was going through mo- much of last year was just kind of tough. And then like at the beginning of this year, like a whole bunch of new opportunities started coming over the horizon. And while I was still home for most of them with sports kind of opening back up and, and things trying to start to starting their process of returning to normalcy. Um, well, I, at times I might feel a bit overworked. I'm blessed, man. I'm, I'm happy, man. Like, I mean, who would have thought like it, it like, being at, be able to work at the athletic is one thing, but being able to work at the athletic, uh, host the show at the Montreal Gazette, uh, do a podcast with Watch Mojo, uh, do stuff with Yahoo Sports, uh, among other things, make appearances on Sportsnet and, and TSN Radio, like all in the same like six, seven, eight months. Like that's that's crazy. That's that's cool. I, honestly, man, like through this pandemic, I've I've been able to get through get a bunch of different opportunities, and I know it's not the same for everybody but I've never been this happy with my life from a professional standpoint, like ever. So uh, the pandemic has, has taken away a few things from me, but it's, it's, I've been able to find and, and work towards a lot of cool things. Cause I know for me personally, uh, you know, my mom's a frontline worker here. She's a nurse wow. and um, you know, at the start of the pandemic uh, in March there, we, you know, she, we didn't know much about the virus. It was, it was almost like, you know, with, with China and like how they knew what they were, they didn't really know what they were dealing with in the first few weeks. That was kind of like the position that, you know, I guess we were put in, you know, I think that I can kind of relate that. Um, but you know, my parents are divorced. So I, what, what am I trying? So the story that I'm going to share here, I, is that, um, you know, I had to be separated from my mom, uh, at the start of the pandemic because of, 
you know, we didn't know necessarily whether she would contract the virus and bring it home. That was the main worry. <clears throat> and she would bring it home to me and my sister. So we did, we wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So for the good, like three, four months or whatever, you know, I stayed primarily with my dad and, um, you know, I FaceTime my mom every day, getting updates. Like, Oh, how's the hospital capacity? How's that? How's this? And she said it was completely fine, which was good. And, you know, that really reassured me. And even on mother's day, I still couldn't hug her. So, uh, you know, it, it's been really tough on, you know, I think a lot of us, uh, you know, whether, you know, you have, you know, whether this has impacted you one way or another, it's really, you know, it, this pandemic has really shaped us in different ways. I think I can, you know, speak to that. Yeah, man. Like, and, and the fact that you brought that story, like, wow, that's that's pretty tough to to deal with. Like, I, I think that uh, while I know I've, I've had to deal with a few tough things, uh, when I hear stories like that, I just think, okay, you know, I didn't have to go through that or my experience is different. It's not to belittle my own experience, but I know that it's not just me. It's not just about me. There are other people who are going through it in a much tougher situation. Uh, people who've lost lives yeah. due to COVID, right? Like, that's, that's tough. I, I know friends who've lost friends because of covid or or no people who had covid like i knock on wood I'm, I'm i'm happy i haven't had the disease at all so um yeah it's it's been tough for a lot of people and uh i've just tried to be as compassionate as i can to a lot of my friends who might not be feeling in tip-top shape or or not really up to doing a lot of different things just because like it's it's not easy for anyone to to go through anything like this you know, to switch this to a more brighter side, uh, you know, with my part-time job here, I, this is a funny story. And this was okay. during the Stanley Cup finals. I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan myself. And I see, you know, doing research, you cover them a lot. And they scheduled me, I think games three and five, uh, you know, my shift was four to eight. And I'm like, and I, you know, I checked the schedule. I'm like, okay, let me check the Stanley Cup final schedule, try and book those off. So then I, I emailed them back like as soon as possible. Look, I can only work four to seven on those two days. And, and I didn't even give them a reason. I made sure to keep the reason out of it. Cause you know, I didn't want to leak that. I was, you know, taking the hour off to make sure I'd be at home in time for the Habs games. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to snitch on yourself like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I can't wrap myself out that easily. No, no way, man. Uh, I, okay, well, so you're a Canadiens fan. Okay, yeah, exactly. So, I'm always surprised whenever, like, I, I, you know, I know Ontario and Quebec are next to each other, but I'm always surprised at the amount of Cana amount of Canadians fans who are in Ontario and and live in quote unquote like enemy territory. So you're probably pretty psyched about. Like, yeah, I'm in the GTA right the now. Final. Dang you. So you are, the, you are in the, the amount heart of, of factory of the factory of sadness right now. Literally, yeah. The amount of boast that like I boasted so hard when the Habs came back from 3-1. And I think I I think if you go down my Twitter, there is proof that I like I said that I don't believe the Habs are coming back. Like this this Leafs roster was so stacked, and I had just no, I couldn't believe they made the comeback. I, I'll say this, man, like for a lot of Canadians fans watching that, I remember before the series even started, there were people who thought that Jake Allen should be starting ahead of Carey Price. Oh, I remember those rumors. Uh, that, yeah, I remember that talk yeah. on Habs Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, Over Carey Price? Price? Like what? Carey Price, if he's healthy. I remember like he played uh, like a game for the Laval Rocket. Like, yeah, and then the he got, he lost that game. Started. Or did he yeah, win? and it, it was not a good, it was like, it wasn't, an ideal situation, I guess. But like, I, I remember tweeting like, okay, 
The Canadians are better off that Carey Price has a stinker in a random AHL game yeah. than a stinker in a Stanley Cup playoff game. And exactly. then look what happened. He, he ended up being the team's best player throughout much of that postseason. And I agree there, uh, you know, and one thing that has really occurred to me, and I've watched many highlights of this past playoff run because it's been unlike anything else, you know, and I think, you know, that this Montreal Canadiens team really brought the fans closer. And maybe that was because of the pandemic, uh, you know, being away from the arena so uh, for so long, you know, it, this run probably means so much to you being from Quebec. Um, I'll say this. It means a lot to me from the standpoint that I got to go cover a Stanley Cup final. Mm-hmm. And like, as someone who has only been working at the athletics since March, like, you know, to go from just being an editor to being given the opportunity to write about Canadians games during the playoffs of, with through a column that I think every one of my bosses thought was just going to last the first round. It was just like, all right, we'll just give Julian something to do. And then it turned into <laughs> busy work. <laughs> yeah, it actually turned into busy work. And then like during the final, I was like pitching story ideas. Like that was really cool. So for, for me, from a personal development standpoint, like it meant a lot to be able to write a lot and, and, and appear on all these different platforms for a team uh, going into the Stanley Cup final, but also just to see like, my friends who are like big, like Canadians fans just lose their minds. Like you mentioned the fact that like, this is probably a run that brought a lot of people closer together, like in Quebec, like this was something that, you know, it brought a lot of people together. Like the, the premier for Francois Legault, you know, during like some of his uh, like press conferences where he's supposed to be talking about COVID, he's supposed to be talking about, uh, cases and stuff like that like at different points he'll mention like Cole Caulfield and like oh yeah he's an exciting <laughs> kid like and you're just like what but like that's how big of a deal the Montreal Canadiens are in Quebec and like think about this like the game they uh clinched uh the birth to the Stanley Cup final they win in overtime against the the Vegas Golden Knights that happened on like the national holiday in Quebec yeah so St. Jean-Baptiste that's a big deal for a lot of people who've like come up and are like pure like Quebecois people for sure. Like that's, I think it meant a lot to a lot of Montrealers to, to see their team do well. And maybe, you know, it, it, I can imagine it just suck for a lot of those fans to see them kind of lose to Tampa, but a lot of fans, especially people my age who their best memories of watching the Canadians do well, go back to 2010 and the journeyman run they had, which led them to the conference final against Philadelphia like that run supplants that now, like this is for, for people my age, like this is like the best thing they've seen. And I must agree with you there. You know, I, I, you know, didn't really watch uh, the Canadians. I'm not a Canadians fan from the ground up. You know, I started out with uh, basically the rivals. I I first started with the Blackhawks, but uh, you know, just getting into hockey. Then I went to the Bruins uh, funny enough, it was the Blackhawks that won the cup, then the Bruins the next year. And then I just decided to cheer for the Canadians simply because I played my uh, house league hockey on a team called the Montreal Canadiens. So I was like, all right, I'll run with this. And, you know, just out of the last five, six years, you know, they've dealt with second round exits. You know, they had the run to the conference finals against the Rangers where Kreider took out Price. And, you know, there's that whole fiasco. And then next thing you know, you know, Price plays his normal self. It really it does seem like price played his normal self until the finals where I thought he was kind of weak. You know, he was laying in a lot of goals, which, you know, the headman won in game four, no game three from the point on the power play. Like usually he'd save that one. He wasn't the better goalie in the series, but you also have to consider the fact he was up against Andre Vasilevsky, who 
like even on paper, like I look at it this way. Almost every series that Carey Price was going into, you could make the argument he was the better goaltender. Even against Connor Hellebuck, who was the reigning Vezina winner. I mean, Jack Campbell, a lot of people were like, oh, Jack Campbell had a better series than Carey Price. Like, I mean, fine from like a maybe a statistical standpoint, but I thought Carey Price did what he had to do to keep his team in that series. Yeah, exactly. And even you could even make that argument in the third round series as well against Marc-Andre Fleury. But once they got to the final against Tampa, like the Canadians were going to have to deal with a really offensive, offensively powered lightning squad, a tough defense. And then after all that, you have to find a way to beat Andre Vasilevsky. I think Perry Price, considering the fact that, you know, he didn't have to carry the load as much as he's had to in the past. Like, I just think it maybe fine at times he did look ordinary, but also I give a lot of credit to Andre Vasilevsky. I think a lot of credit should go to him because he was flat out the better goaltender in this series. And he did an absolute outstanding job uh, to keep his team up and, and eventually lead them to a Stanley Cup final win. You mentioned about carrying the load there, um, but, you know, what do you make of the different goal? You know, I guess the goal scoring that's been happening with the Habs, because I remember that Gallagher was relied on a lot when I was, you know, growing up as a Habs fan. And now that shifted towards Cole Caulfield chipped in, Suzuki to Foley. You got Stahl, who, you know, had a renaissance playoff run, essentially, after having a poor regular season. Um, in terms of the goal scoring, uh, it is interesting to see how uh, this team has gone from a, a squad that said, you know what, we're going to have to get goals by committee. So, yes, they did rely on Brendan Gallagher, but they kind of tried to rely on everybody like Thomas Tatar before he left this offseason. That was a the guy they were leading upon for goals because this team doesn't have a guy who could score like 35, 40 or 45 goals to, to rely upon. So they're hoping that their collection of guys who could score 20, 25, maybe 30 would be able to help them over the top. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, them going forward with a guy like Cole Caulfield who uh, has surpassed a lot of mine and other people's expectations. And I was talking about on radio today, like he could win the Calder trophy by scoring 28 goals, but there are people who think he could score 30 and eventually 40. If, if he, if he follows the same trajectory as two other players, he's been compared to as Cam Atkinson and, and Alex Dabrinkit and Tyler Toffoli is a guy who is able to, to put up 25 goal seasons. He's even hit the 30 goal plateau at least once. And depending on the line mates you give Nick Suzuki, maybe he too has a 30 goal season in him. And Mike Hoffman, a lot of people like to make the comment that Mike Hoffman is a one trick pony. And the fact that like, Oh, well, he's just someone who has a shot and uh, will be useful on the power play. Yeah, if you look at the Montreal Canadiens over the last few years, they've needed goal scoring and they needed help on the power play. So Mike Hoffman's one-trick pony act is exactly what the Canadians need. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, how their goal scoring efforts change over the next year or so. Getting into your story a bit here, you know, who influenced you to get into sports journalism? Uh, my love for sports video games did, I guess. I don't know. I, I think about this a lot where like I... I don't know. I, I remember growing up, I, I would read the Montreal Gazette a lot and I would uh, go through the sports section and, and read guys like uh, uh, Dave Stubbs when he was there and, and Red Fisher near the end of his career and Stu Cowan, who I, I, I do a YouTube show with uh, through the Montreal Gazette, uh, Randy Phillips when he was there. So a lot of people from the Gazette and then uh, just a lot of people I got to listen to at TSN 690 when I was younger, uh, Mitch Melnick, Connor McKenna, Sean Campbell, who I got to work with uh, as an intern. Uh, Eric Thomas, who now works at Sportsnet, he was at TSN 690 once upon a time too. Um, and then also now, like, I, I just kind of look at what my friends are doing too. And I see the amount of work that they're putting in and into a lot of their jobs and, and a lot of their own personal projects. And that also fuels me to 
keep myself going because I, I know that like I, I I'm working as hard as I can to, to push myself up but a lot of my friends are also in the similar field and they're trying to make a way for themselves too so I see I think they also play an influence on on what I'm able to do so yeah it, it's a collection of a lot of different people uh who, who've kind of influenced my my journey uh to this point a lot of play-by-play -play people too even though I don't really do play-by-play -play as well but like people like Chris Cuthbert are people who I have enjoyed for years and years and years man so yeah, uh, I think it's it's hard to pin down just like one influence, but I, I'd say uh, all the influences that I have at different points in my life have been really useful. Did you kind of have to adapt your job in some way because of how COVID was, you know, basically forcing everyone to work from home? And would you continue these skills that you have learned into the future? So uh, when I was at CTV Montreal uh, for a few years, I was a uh, my main duty essentially was a was a weatherman. The biggest change I had to do was uh, because of COVID. At least at the start of it, I had to do uh, some weather hits from home. Uh, I don't think I I think I did a few in this room actually. Uh, that was pretty fun to do, um, but I thought it was kind of cool to be able to do a lot of the work from home and not necessarily have to you know, hop from one place to another to, to work. It was, it, I learned to really like it and, and I embraced how convenient it was to just kind of pop out of my bed and then just go into the office and, and, and do all my work from there. So I'll say in terms of like skills and stuff, like, you know, just being able to adapt to a changing situation. I mean, we all kind of had to do it through, through the pandemic and, and working on zoom, but uh, I, I did find some silver linings in in having to work with people, even, work from home, even if I didn't have the opportunity to kind of be around people like how I would be pre the pandemic. Does working from home kind of make you more efficient at your job? Um, maybe. I, I'd, I'd hope so. Because like guess. the laptop's right there, you know, your setup's already there. All you have to do is just wake up, grab a coffee, and next thing you know, you're already working. I don't really drink coffee that much, so I guess that's one <laughs> last thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I definitely like how convenient it is to just like walk up and just do work for a few hours and do everything from there. And if I want to, uh, if I have to do like a, a podcast recording, like it's right there, I don't have to jump from one place to another to to do that. So yeah, I, I definitely embraced uh, how convenient it, this it all is to just kind of have like a one-stop shop for recording podcasts and writing stuff and uh, even doing a TV appearance, I've, I've like the few times I've been on Sportsnet, like I've just like how we're talking on Zoom right now. That's pretty much how it's had to work. Well, speaking of podcasts, you know, you work with Yahoo Sports and you use and you actually do a podcast called uh, Zone Time. Sorry, uh, you know, how yeah. did that start up? Uh, Zone Time was an idea that um, Dan Toman, who was the former head of Yahoo Sports Canada, who's now moved on to Sportsnet, uh, he approached me with the idea. And he was like, yeah, we should do like this cool like group chat show because Yahoo Sports also has like a like a Tron, like a basketball Raptors equivalent. Uh, and they were like, yo, we should do one for for hockey. And he told me like, yo, we want you to we want you to be on the show, but we also want like uh, a couple of hockey Twitter people on. And he mentioned Omar's name and he mentioned uh, Samantha Chang's name. They mentioned uh, Rahef, he says, well, and I, I also suggested uh, Avery Lewis McDougal. I was like, dude, you got to do this show. And, and involve Avery because he, he's got takes, he's smart, and he's able to do this stuff. So, yeah, I when they pitched me on that show, uh, the the topics pertain to the NHL and the fact that the casting characters are like 
super diverse because like we're, we're so used to watching like hockey shows where it's just like the same white guys like talking about hockey and i get it like there's always going to be a market for hot white guys talking about hockey <laughs> but like it's cool to see that like you know we can all talk hockey and we don't take ourselves that seriously except for when it comes time for us to take things seriously especially when it's come to uh logan mayu and, and the chicago blackhawks like i think we have a good group of people who are able to be serious and nuanced with their opinions while also being relatable to a lot of people who consume content over Twitter, for example. So, and a lot of people from our, our respective age group. So yeah, I, I'm really proud of what we do at Zone Time every time we're on. It's one of my favorite things I get to do. So I'm, I'm really happy that uh, people are watching it. I actually did want to talk about the Logan Mayu and Chicago Blackhawks scandal because that is just sure. polarizing. Uh, so we'll go with Logan Mayu first. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, when the Habs announced the pick and it was so stupid and foolish of them to do that. Like Bergevin made the simplest mistake I've ever seen him make at, at any draft. Um, I'll say that like, it, it just still was just a bit shocking. Like I'll say this about Logan Mayu, like he made a very bad mistake and yeah. it's, it's something that he needs to atone for if he wants to earn that second chance. And I know a lot of people are saying, oh, well, a lot of media are, are crucifying the kid and they're trying to end his career before it even starts or whatever. I mean, I think like when, when that story came out from The Athletic where the victim of, of what had happened in Sweden was saying that she didn't get a sufficient apology, like, I'm sorry, like I, I, that, that, that raises a flag for me. I'm like, okay, how genuine is Logan's like apology, right? But even if, you know, he may or may not have been genuine. He at least put up the statement saying that he did not want to be taken. And what the Montreal Canadiens essentially did, whether their intentions were good or not, whether their intentions were to truly rehabilitate him or not, was it sends the wrong message. It says, it says that like, you know what, you did wrong. Maybe you didn't necessarily atone properly for what you did, but we can fast track you to rehabilitation because you are a good hockey player. And people like to bring up the examples that, you know, oh, well, there's all these other guys in the National Hockey League who are not good people. Like, you know, the Montreal Canadiens are, are supposed to be a model franchise in the National Hockey League. They're, you know, you don't have to hold them to that same standard. And other teams have had to deal with those situations. They've had their way of dealing with it as well, where no one's saying that, like, that's okay to let Austin Matthews act like a fool in the offseason or Patrick Kane to have his off-ice transgressions or Evander Kane with his own. No one's saying that. It's just that the Canadians found themselves in a situation where they could have totally avoided it. And they just decided to jump into it. It's a very confusing decision. I completely understand why a lot of Canadians fans were, were very upset about it. And, you know, I guess because this comment, right, it's always uh, it's the one that I see like, oh, yeah, you know, if you always have to release a statement about drafting a player right after you draft him, it's probably not a good idea. And, you know, that does hold true. Um, I just I found it embarrassing. Like it's almost backstabbing to the whole fans. And, you know, uh, Mark Dumont, who really does a great job for covering the Habs, he's a contributor for their website, you know, was radio silent after the draft pick. And I really do feel for those who, you know, cover the Habs for, you know, 15, you know, however many years it is. And it really was just polarizing and shocking to see, you know, Montreal mess up a draft pick so easily. I will give Montreal media uh, this. Like, I was very surprised at how uniform and, and universal yeah. the opinion was in 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 slamming the pick. Like, I thought, like, I'm okay, glad it maybe was. So 
I thought someone would have been like, whatever, there's good to it. Or someone would have tried to find a way to not really ask about it in media availabilities. But I remember that first media availability with Mark Bergevin, like every question about the pick and everyone asking, like no one, no one eased up on Mark Bergevin. I'm like, wow. Okay. This, this is really happening. Like everyone on this is really like trying to take the Canadians to task. I was pleasantly surprised at that. Well, you mentioned the media availability, and I love I the the moment that I really love that really speaks, I guess, volumes is when Mark Antoine Gaudin asked uh, Steve or uh, Trevor Timmons, sorry, about why you know Logan Mayu he puts up the statement saying uh, you know he doesn't want to be drafted, so why do you think otherwise? And then you know Timmons sits there in silence for you know 20, 25 seconds and asks you know the, to clarify the question. It, it boggles my mind. Uh, yeah, it just goes to show, I mean, the Canadians could have prepared for this a lot better, but they also could have afforded this situation entirely by by picking somebody else. Uh, yeah, to, to watch that draft and see them do that pick and then watch the Blackhawks trot out uh, a number of women behind Stan Bowman yeah. in light of the allegations, it was a pretty crappy way to end the first round of the draft, honestly. So, uh, yeah, I just think the Canadians could have put themselves in an avoidable situation but they, this is the decision they decided to make, and they're gonna have to, they're they're gonna go through with it the, with the plan that they put out after the fact. But I totally understand why a lot of Canadians fans. I know there's a few fans who uh, have been dumping on the media and being like, "Oh, you guys are too harsh." But there are a lot of other Canadians fans who feel that the Canadians deserve to be taken to task. So and I and I completely understand where they're coming from. And I think that whatever they do, whatever help they do with Logan is, you know, as much of a need for the victim as well, if not more, you know, they, they have to also help the victim out. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not completely sure what they're going to do on that front, but I, I, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of fans, a lot of people just on the internet, David really regarded the victim all that much uh, a lot of their feelings have really just been towards logan and and seeing to it that he's okay and he's not getting killed when there's a girl in europe right now who might be horrified after what had transpired uh in a yes a consensual sexual act but also at the same time the spreading of the photo yeah. not consensual like that's just i don't know I, I it's a it's a really dumb mistake for for anyone to do uh and it's just it's just a bit of a weird situation. Getting onto the Blackhawks uh, scandal here, you know, what were your first reactions to when the news originally came out? When the allegations came out, I was pretty horrified uh, to kind of go through some of the details. Pretty gruesome and pretty just, I remember just being on the Outsports yeah, Hockey podcast with Justin, we were talking about it and like it was, it was hard to form out sentences. You know, it's one thing to like, it's, it's just, it's, like it boggles my mind that these allegations are were out there. And what's also been a bit confusing is just hearing some people say, okay, well, everyone knew. And then other people are saying, okay, not everyone knew. And it's just a matter of figuring out like, okay, like who knew what, what was going on, what's true, what's not. But this is a dark mark. I think the Chicago Blackhawks have to deal with. And this is also the same organization that had Akeem Aliu. Uh, go through the racial abuse he went through through Bill Peters because he was the AHL coach at the time and some of the luster that was around the Blackhawks as they tried to renew themselves in the early 2010s with all those Stanley Cup wins after years of futility some of that shine is like worn off I feel with the way that uh, some of the bad stuff that's come out about the organization recently uh, has really kind of tarnished a bit of their reputation so it's it, it was very shocking for for me to hear those allegations 
I must agree with you. And I love the reporting that Rick Westhead has done along with Katie Strang, your, you know, co-worker there at The Athletic, uh, you know, Mark Lazarus, uh, Ben West, uh, both working with the Chicago Blackhawks, trying to really nail down, uh, you know, who really, who did what. And I think, because I'm very happy that Jenner and Block announced uh, that they're going to make these public, or it wasn't General Block, it was uh, Wirtz, the owner who announced that the uh, fundings are going to be made public. And I think that's going to clarify a lot of questions that we have. Well, I, I would hope so. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm just keeping a cynical ear to this. It's just a matter of, you know, what the Hawks are willing to reveal, right? Like, you know, may, I, I, I would, I hope that uh, fans and media are able to get as much information from these findings as much as possible. And I also hope that the victims uh, who uh, went through the tragedy, there's also a high school, high school player who, who went through, who allegedly went through uh, abuse at the hands of, of Brad Aldrich. Like, I, I hope they're able to find some peace after all of this, because this can't be easy to go through and, and your lives are just forever altered as a result of uh, what happened. I should say the, the, the high school player was in high school at the time when, when the incident happened, I should say. But still, it's, it's not an easy situation. It's very difficult. And I'm just happy that there are people who recognize that this is a very topical story. And this is not something that should just be buried in the back of people's minds. I'm happy that people realize that this is a really important story. Uh, yeah, you know, and I think that with, you know, there's basically dead news right now in the NHL, uh, you know, we're into the dog days of summer. So hopefully that, you know, this story, once more updates come out, kind of do take the headlines since there really isn't much uh, else taking the headlines. I mean, the headline today was Joel Thorne signed with the Florida Panthers. Yeah, uh, I know Rick West had posted something uh, Thursday, and I think it was a, a story about how Paul Vincent uh reached out to at least two specified that he, uh, he took the story to at least two members of the Blackhawks organization. But I don't think in terms of like, I don't think they were like hockey operations people, if I recall correctly, but any little piece, whether we get it from Rick, whether we get it from Katie, whether we get it from Scott and Mark out at the athletic as well, or, or Ben West out at WBEZ, like, you know, anything to get us closer to the truth and the story kind of reaching its end uh it'll be all the better for us who want to be informed about what's going on getting back onto the topic of really this past season you know it was really wild because i found that keeping up with other you know divisions i found that this season was really watching four different leagues at once and you know <laughs> with how you're playing your interdivisional games during the whole regular season you know would you agree with me on that point Man, uh, I would be good uh, if I don't have to see like the Vancouver Canucks like for a while, you know. Like I think, I think a lot of people at the beginning thought time. it was. Yeah. Oh, dude. I, I don't <laughs> that ever was the worst, see, man. I don't ever want to see anybody complain about start times. After that 11.30 p.m. start time, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to complain about start times anymore because that was the worst thing I ever had to experience. I was still live blogging. Uh, Canadians games for the Gazette at the time and to be up watching at 1130 at night insanity uh, I'll say that uh, the divisions like it's funny the people were pretty excited at the fact that you know there's all these rivalry games it's gonna bring up all the rivalries with all these teams and then like partway through everyone just kind of got bored because yeah, it's, it's like, like a right out yeah, well, literally, literally people got flamed out from watching the Calgary Flames over and over and over and over and over again uh, and so I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily miss the Canadian division. I'm looking forward to a random 
Montreal Canadiens, Philadelphia Flyers game in like October or November or whenever they're scheduled just to be like, oh, hey, wow, I can watch another NHL team uh, that is not from Canada play against the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, because like I was so focused on the North Division that like every other division would come second, third to it. You know, I wasn't really focused on the Central or, you know, the East Division. And I, you know, I casually watched the standings, but I wouldn't even watch the highlights. Like I, I just, I guess the fans maybe not being there just kind of like, eh, well, whatever. Uh, I, and I'm not sure if most fans would agree with me there, but it's just such a weird season that we completed. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's over, honestly. And I yeah. see a lot of hockey types, hockey media types taking breaks after all of it because, you know, that, that offseason between the playing round leading into the new year, like that was a bit short for them. And then they had to kind of get back up on the high horse for a 56-game season. That was just like a weird, weird, weird year. I don't know if we'll ever experience anything like that ever again. I would hope not. But, like, it's just, yeah, it, I, I'm, I'm good with not seeing – Canadian teams play each other again and again at nauseum here. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I did get really tired of seeing the Flames, and maybe that was because of their defensive <laughs> system that they run, and maybe it was Jeez. also because Montreal just didn't have success against them. The, the regular season, that's like one of the weirder ones to follow, right? Because they have like this really good start, and then everything just kind of flatlines, right? Yeah, They're exactly. trying to change – they change around the head coach – trying to change around lineups like the power play started off okay and then it filtered down to like there was just too many weird things to go on in the regular season that's why everyone was so skeptical going into the playoffs the nhl had an idea of you know doing a made for tv event and you know we saw one last night actually with the yankees and white Sox in uh, the field of dreams which by the way mlb game of the year to this point i loved it yeah i uh, and you know i'm going to talk about lake tahoe here and we all know that it was great to start until the sun kind of ruined everything, uh, melting the ice. What do you make of that whole incident? Uh, that was kind of funny to, to hear. You know, imagine just like <laughs> trying to play a hockey game and you realize, oops, the sun. <laughs> yeah, there were some logistics that I think the NHL could have probably worked out. I don't mind uh, the outdoor games. I would like to see a, a like fewer of them because it like having like, a bunch of them through the winter classic and the stadium series kind of takes away the novelty of, of having these games in the first place. I'm also not too crazy about having them in like warmer climate places, but that's a whole other story. Like Los Angeles. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, like no disrespect, but like, I don't like what's, what's the point. What are, yeah, what are we know. really doing? Like, why are we having them in warmer climate places? Isn't the point of these games is to have it in the spot where there actually is snow and, and there actually is ice conditions and it's not like artificial. Like we don't, we don't, I don't think we need to do that. You know, if you want LA in a winter classic game, put them in a game that's in Boston or put them in a game that's in Michigan, for example, I don't have a problem with seeing different teams other than Chicago in an outdoor game, just put them in a, in, a, in conditions that are good. And Lake Tahoe, I don't know anything about the area, but like that was fun. That was kind of funny to kind of see, but I think the NHL probably wouldn't find it nearly as funny as I would. One site that I would really love to see the NHL go to next would probably be, you know, in Alberta. I, and I'm now forgetting the name of the place. Commonwealth uh, stadium. You're thinking not Commonwealth, but it's a natural park site. And I, I literally went to Alberta two years ago and I took photos there. How am I forgetting this? <laughs> I, I, I can't believe like it. Banff? Are you thinking of Banff? Yeah, or? yeah, sure. We're going with Banff. And I, uh, so there's Banff, there's... But I hope I hope it is. I just listed off the name. I, I can't think of the damn... Lake Louise? The damn, or... I can't think of the, the damn place. This is so annoying. 
Do you um, want to take a minute and research it? I'm, I'm cool I, with that if I you can, want. This is unreal. Uh, That's I don't so funny. Search. And for some reason, oh, Lake Louise. There you go. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. said Lake Louise. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. yeah that's okay. where. That's one place I would love to see the NHL go to. Now, obviously, they have to work out like natural park logistics and get the confirmation from the probably the province of Alberta. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to see the NHL do a game there. That'd be cool. Um, I'd like to be able to go to an outdoor game just to say I did. Uh, I'll, I'll say that like. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool with them doing outdoor games in Canada. And, and just as long as it's not something that's like three or four of them a year in different places, like just yeah. limit the number, make it a special thing, or if nothing else, do two. If you want to do a winter classic where you insist on having American teams in it, fine. Like, or, or an American team and a Canadian team, fine. Uh, the only other one I think would be cool is to bring back like the heritage game uh or you have like two canadian teams go at it like that's that's okay too but like no more than those two games don't i'm i'm not crazy about the stadium series i'm sorry yeah I, you know i just think the i do agree with you on the novelty part there you know i think that uh once you do too many it's almost like an overabundance and you're overdoing it and you're not really maximizing the true value that really brings a winter classic uh with fans together for sure. But at the same time, uh, the NHL is probably looking at it from the standpoint where they can at least maximize their profits because oh, if yeah, you're putting 100%. all those bums in the seats uh, at Ann Arbor, like, oh, okay, you're making quite a bit of money from those games. So I'm sure the NHL, while I would like the novelty respected, they're probably just like, okay, let's try to make some money uh, off of these big venue stadiums hosting these NHL games. Being from Montreal like you are, what does it mean for you to cover such a storied franchise? Um, it's pretty cool. It's it's awesome that like, like I know like Arpin Basu and, and Marco Antoine Godin are the main people for the Athletic, uh, who cover the Montreal Canadiens. And I know I kind of am like a third, like an alternate who could just kind of step in and do stuff. But uh, the times I've been able to be around the Montreal Canadiens, whether it's through them or or the Gazette, like it's it's pretty special. Uh, I thought I I didn't think I'd be in the situation as soon as I, I am now. Uh, but when I realized it was within striking distance after I got out of school, I was like, okay, I got to make this like a thing. And to say that I've accomplished that goal, uh, being in press conferences and asking questions and writing stories, uh, and being able to talk about the Habs as well, different platforms. Like that's, that really means a lot for me to, to be able to do that for my own personal development as someone who wants to, you know, go far in, in, in sports media. And that's really cool for me to do. Speaking on this past season for the Montreal Canadiens, like we have been, you know, they really opened up this season going on a tear. I think they won or, you know, they won 12 of their, you know, first 13 games. And then they really struggled to win games at all, whether it was in regulation or in overtime. You know, what do you make of that struggle? Uh, I think the Canadians just kind of ran into, uh, I mean, when you're not playing all your games against Vancouver, I mean, that's, that's one yeah. thing, right? Like a lot of those wins came against like, of Vancouver, but it was funny. To, it's funny to see like Ottawa, a team that no one pegged to do anything of note. They ended up being a thorn in a lot of team sides. Like I, I tweeted out like at the end of this season, like the only two teams who could really feel good about their seasons from the North division are Montreal and the Ottawa senators, because the Ottawa senators can point to almost every team in the division and be like, yeah, you know what? Maybe you guys might've beaten us more times than not. Uh, boom, uh, we have this big win over you. Like the, like the Leafs, for example, the Sanders can say, hey, we have that big comeback win over you. The Sanders can say, hey, we beat the Canadians to the point where they had to fire their head coach and replace yeah. them with an interim one to take over. Um, yeah, I, I think the struggles that the Canadians had to, that the Canadians went through throughout the season, like 
it was quite something to see. It wasn't something I, I particularly expected. I thought this was going to be a team that with the players that they accumulated, maybe they'd just be an easy top two, top three team. And to see them kind of crawl to fourth was a bit surprising. And that's why my expectations for the team kind of went down once they entered the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I know I'm not alone in that. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the Habs, right, they were kind of cursed from the Chris Johnston tweet when he said the Habs were a juggernaut, and then <laughs> that's when they plummeted. So I blame Chris CJ. Johnston. Yeah. Oh, like, dude. man, CJ. Shout out CJ, man. I like to tease him about the juggernaut tweet every now and then, bro, because CJ, man, I don't know. I don't think he realized what he did, man. He was just harmlessly tweeting on Twitter about how they're a juggernaut. I think he had a point. Like he, he had a point. This team, yeah. this Canadian team with the, with the uh, acquisitions they made in the off season and their start. Like, yeah, I think it was easy for a lot of people to fall in, not fall into a trap, but a lot of people to just feel that this was a much different Canadian team. And it turns out most of us who felt that way were right. It's just, they had to push through a week rest of the regular season, man. But CJ, uh, dude, man, like, uh, Cut him some slack, right? He he tried his best, man. Right? A lot I know a lot of people in Toronto are, are probably still upset at him for that, but like, hey, you know, like he, he was right. He was right. The Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, teamed up with Amazon uh, for the all or nothing series that I'm super excited for because you mentioned the comeback, uh, <laughs> you know, win for Ottawa over the Leafs. Uh, how excited are you for that series? Uh, I don't know if I'm excited as like some of my other Toronto Maple Leafs friends who've been trying to tweet through the pain. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of funny to see. Uh, it's funny that like people over the last few days were like, where's this documentary? Where's this documentary? And I'm sure there are a few people who are like, okay, you know what? We could wait because we all know how this is going to end. Yeah, exactly. um, I'm intrigued uh, at all the stuff that they're going to fill in uh, to at least get us to watch because we know how the Leafs season ended, right? Like we all know what happened. And even in the trailer, like Will Arnett, it's all like, yeah, we lost again. So then you know how it ends, but uh, I'm intrigued at how they show off some of the personalities uh, and what other cool stuff we get to learn about the Leafs throughout that year. I think it's cool to see NHL teams get the documentary treatment through the all or nothing series and really get the inside uh, on, on what they're really like behind closed doors, especially in a year where, you know, we were going through the pandemic and we don't have locker room access. So it's pretty cool to see that there is something like that uh, where we can see what it was like for the Leafs players to go through the season that they did. How do you, how much do you miss that locker room access? A lot. Cause like, it's, it's not the same to be on zoom and, and like put your hand up and hope that like, the Canadians PR team will, will pick your question. Like the coolest thing about going into the Canes locker room, I'm sure it's the same in like other Canadian locker rooms, like you're outside the locker room with a horde of journalists. And it's kind of like the running of the bulls where like, you know, they, they open the hatch and then all the bulls kind of just run through and like you run into the locker room and there are different players around and everyone is just trying to, get a microphone in someone's face and trying to get audio from somebody. And there's like a fun, like rush of like, just like going in and, and talking to guys, but also there's the idea that like, you know, not everyone's story is going to be the same. Like a lot of people could be going to carry price uh, after he goes through like a 36 save performance, but that might mean that Paul Byron's a left alone on the side and you might be able to get Paul Byron, of course, like because of the mass amount of people in the Montreal market, Paul Byron even would get like four or five people oh, yeah. around him just as Carey Price is getting the majority of the horde. But still, like it's it's cool to to have those different types of stories from 
those one-on-ones you can get if you're able to to work your way through that. But on Zoom, you're just not able to get any of that. And there are a few players who play on the Canadiens this past year, like Corey Perry, that like Montreal media will probably never truly get to really know beyond those Zoom conferences. And I really am going to miss Corey Perry and what he brought to the team. You know, he was really, he was on the practice squad or the taxi squad, whatever it was uh, for, you know, the start of the season. And once he was, you know, inserting the lineup, he never got out. So, you know, props to him for keeping up the hard work at his age to, you know, stay in the lineup. And he really formed a great fourth line with Yuel Armia and Eric Stahl later in the season. Yeah. He, he, he has a lot of hockey in him. I was still pretty surprised that uh, he only got signed when he did like late in the free agency process, late in the free agency process last December. Uh, and the Canadians just kind of had him just on the lineup, just helping out with that fourth line. And yeah, that fourth line with him, Stalin, Armia, uh, the fact that they were physical, the fact that they were able to maintain offensive zone possession and they were able to get pro- offensive production out of it. Like that was probably the biggest surprise from the Canadians throughout that playoff run. Because a lot of people were wondering, okay, where are the goals going to come from with the way they're deploying their lines? If you would have told me that, like, the fourth line at the beginning of the playoffs was the reason why the Canadians were going to get goals on the board, I'd look at you, like, pretty weirdly. I'm like, really? Like, these guys? Like, what? nothing against those players, but, like, you're not expecting the fourth line for the Montreal Canadiens uh, to be the line that puts a team over the top. One little wrench in the, you know, I guess in the season was the whole, you know, uh, mandated quarantine for trades uh, during the regular season there. Did you expect many trades to happen because of that mandated quarantine? Um, I wasn't really sure what to expect, to be quite honest with you. Um, it was quite enlightening to hear certain players say that, you know what, they either did want to get traded into the Canadian bubble or other players express no interest in, in being in that. That was the most intriguing thing for me in terms of the trades that did happen. I mean, GMs were, were going to be busy regardless. I was more intrigued at uh, the timing. I thought we'd see more guys do deals like a week before the actual deadline. That's what I thought was going to happen. There were a few, but like I thought we would see a situation where like this, there's like a pseudo deadline like a week before the actual deadline just because general managers – want to take advantage of, of whatever time they could kill off to see to it that their player can be quarantining and then eventually in a lineup. The Habs squeaked in into the playoffs by the skin of their teeth and, you know, with the fantastic play of Jake Allen, how important was that acquisition reflecting back on it for Mark Bergevin to make? Uh, Jake Allen's the best backup that Carey Price has ever had throughout his, throughout his Montreal career. And he's had games where, fine, maybe they didn't all turn to wins for the Canadians, but Jake Allen had games where he was solid and he was the best player on the ice for this team. Uh, he won their trophy for the team's essentially their unsung hero. So he means a lot to this organization, like so much so that the Canadians tried their absolute best to find a way to protect him in the expansion draft. So like this is a guy who uh, gave it his all throughout last season. And if he continues it into next year, uh, that's a pretty good one-two to have for the Canadians. They have a guy who can ensure that Carey Price does not have to go through another 60, 70 game season in net. Like if they want to decrease the numbers to, to 55, for example, for Carey Price, I mean, it, it could be venturing towards that way anyway, because Carey Price might not, even be, might not even be ready for day one of the season. Jake Allen has proven he's is a reliable backup or one B goaltender to rely upon. 
And yeah, I agree with you, you know, and with Carey Price, yeah, I think what you want to do is to play to his abilities. And that's when he's rested, well rested. We saw this postseason that what he can do when he's coming off months of rest. Yeah, when he's well rested and not dealing with any nagging injuries, the Montreal Canadiens have as good a chance as any to win a game. He's on his he's on his game. He's on he's on his own. Uh, like when he's at that point, like Carey Price can still play like one of the best goaltenders in the world. And I think that's what that playoff run uh, served to remind a lot of people. A lot of people were were saying that Carey Price was kind of washed up and he wasn't among the best. But when Carey Price is healthy, he very much can be among the best. Like I said earlier, he might not be better than Andre Vasilevsky. I think he's the undisputed number one goaltender in the world. But Carey Price is not somebody who uh, I would expect to see lose the net ahead of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Cole Caulfield, you know, when he made his debut against the Calgary Flames, the whole Tabs Twitter fandom was going absolutely nuts. Uh, did you kind of get a sense that was the boost of confidence the team needed? Um, I didn't look at it that way in terms of a boost of confidence for the team, but I definitely looked at it uh, from a standpoint for Cole Caulfield as a confidence booster for him, just because he had gone through the AHL and he did pretty well in the few games he played with the Rocket. And then for him to already get minutes with the uh, – with a bunch of Canadians, like that's pretty cool. This is a guy who's playing college and scoring goals like a couple months back, and he's already uh, getting NHL minutes in. So, yeah, I, I think it was a pretty good boost for Cole Caulfield, but I also just did not expect him to take to the NHL as quickly as he did. Uh, a guy who not only does he have like the shot, not only does he have the offensive ability to score goals, but uh, he's shown he has some abilities as a playmaker. He's shown that he can be rather elusive on the ice. Like, how many times have you looked at Cole Caulfield, especially in the playoffs? How many times have you seen him get like mauled or destroyed by, by bigger players? That's not to say he's like fighting them. He's just finding ways out of a situation where he might get smushed by those guys. So I think Cole Caulfield in the limited sample size that we've seen of him so far, he's very much impressed. And while I don't necessarily think of it as like a confidence booster for the team, definitely for himself, like that's, that's a pretty big boost for him. I want to add uh, something on to your playmaking point you made there. And, uh, you know, this kind of makes me think of game two against Vegas when he really sold the shot and to, or sold the shot and then passed to Tyler Toffoli who scored the goal there. And that really opened my eyes to like, okay, this guy, like he's an all around player, shooter, passer. He's pretty lethal on the ice in the ozone. Yeah. He's, he has those abilities. I also think of uh game four of the second round series against the Winnipeg Jets where he sets up that play to Tyler Toffoli for them to win the series. Like he's, he's somebody who uh, it's funny to see people go off on the goal scoring ability and how always oh, going to score all these goals from the Ovechkin spot. But there's so many other attributes to this player, uh, at least in what we've seen so far that make him a favor for the Calder trophy this coming season. So yeah, I think Cole Caulfield uh, has, has a few more abilities than a lot of other people like to let on. I think the Canadians were just so, star for goal scoring that a lot of people just kind of got lost in the hype of him scoring goals but this is a player if he works at it he might be able to contribute a few more things and funny enough the cold caulfield call couldn't have even couldn't have worked you know because with the salary cap once was over they couldn't afford his contract yeah that was a bit of some salary cap hijinks as well and we all know how different teams have been trying to maneuver through that so yeah uh between that and 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 Cole Caulfield also not playing the first few games of that Leafs series. Like there, there were some constraints in the way to keep him in the lineup. But since he's been inserted into the lineup, like he's, he's been a breath of fresh air. And now the Canes can say looking into next season, like I get that, like there's, 
some apprehension about where they might finish in in the uh, the Atlantic Division. But I, I also think that a guy like Cole Caulfield in a full in his first full NHL season, like there's an opportunity for him to to get some goals up and and really impress. You mentioned that how he was out of the lineup for you know the first couple of games against Toronto, but so was just Barry Yemi and you know Ducharme went with the veteran style lineup for Game One. You know, was that decision really confusing at all? Because to me, it, it was. Yeah, um, I, I felt that uh, to see those two players, I, Caulfield was one thing because Fani was a rookie and maybe you waited a little bit, but I also think with Jesperi Kakanyemi, a guy who did well in the play-in rounds in the playoffs last year, or the year before, I should say, uh, I was surprised to see him out of the lineup. I know that a lot of people looked at his regular season and felt he didn't necessarily play all that well, but he's somebody who I think deserved to at least kind of get that start in the lineup just to you know, have that mix of youth and veteran presence there. Uh, but when the Canadians eventually asserted those two in the lineup, like I think it made a difference. I know Cockney kind of faded near the end of the playoffs, but Caulfield for sure. He's someone who made a difference for this team with his speed and his shooting ability and just being a good player for this Canadians team. I know for me that when I heard the news about how Quebec announced they were allowing for fans in for game six of that series, you know, I was really juiced. Like that really got me pumped up. Because uh, I wanted the series to go at least six games. Did the atmosphere kind of feel dead at sometimes, you know, going to the Hab games? No. Uh, the whole time I was there, like, the fans were just always amped, always, like, in it. Even in the Stanley Cup final where, like, they were down by how many games. Like, the, the fans tried their absolute best to be in it in the Bell Center. The people who worked at the Bell Center did their absolute best to try to make this make to seem the crowd make the crowd seem as if uh they were a lot larger than the people they were allowed in the building there were so many people who were tweeting during the game like hey are you sure it's only uh this amount of fans available allowed in in the building are you sure it's only these amount of fans who are in the building like what's what's going on here so i think the canadians deserve a lot of credit for her finding a way to to make their home advantage despite the capacity uh constraints Uh, a lot more uh, present and a lot more uh, a lot better than they were leading on 2,500 feel like 25,000. I swear to God. I figured someone was going to make that quote between you and I, and I'm glad you did it. That, that quote there, that was amazing. Yeah. You know, I think that quote really stood out from the playoffs. Yeah. I I don't know who that Ludovic guy, I think that was the name of the guy. Yeah. I think so. Like, yeah, man, like, dude might be, like, a meme for, like, quite some time. That guy, uh, there's another guy who who kept saying Tomas Tata yeah, for years. dude. He's going to be replaced by Ludovic now. Like, he's he's the guy. He's, like, 2,500, feel like 25,000, I swear to God. Like, that's that's the meme now. That's that's the Canadian's meme. Well, see, that actually, you bring up Tatar there really transitions well into my next question. Because I saw Tatar really fall down the postseason depth charts after having what seemed like a great regular season. Are you kind of able to explain why that happened? I think the Canadians were just at a point where they needed offensive production. And that top line with him and, and Gallagher and, and, and Phil Deneau, while we've come to see that they basically their main job was to just kind of shut down the opponent's best player. Um Thomas Tatar was just not able to really contribute all that much offensively. And uh, it's not the first time he's had to be scratched from the playoffs like that for, for a team. I mean, you remember with Vegas, uh, he didn't even get to play in the Stanley Cup final with them either when they made it on that uh, fantastic run in 2018. So it, I think Thomas Tatar through the run in Vegas and through the run with the Canadians, he's established himself as a player who can help a team get to the playoffs, but getting through the playoffs is a slightly different story. 
what perspective are you going to take on the Habs losing Phil Deneau and how they're going to replace that defensive awareness? You know, are you going to say, okay, well, Nick Suzuki, you know, he's seen, he's shown that he's really good in the D zone. You know, he has good awareness there, you know, just very cocky It's time for him to step up offensively as well. Uh, Jake Evans as well. I think he'll get yeah. a lot of look for that as well, because he's someone who has proven that he can, do good things defensively, try to hold up his own against the other team's best players as well whenever he's been called upon to do so. Uh, he's someone who I wouldn't be surprised if he's penciled in as like the, the team's number three or number four center uh, heading into uh, the regular season. Of course, the Canadians could opt for Mathieu Perrault or, or Cedric Paquette to take up those bottom six lines, but uh, I'd be stunned if Jake Evans didn't have a place in this team because he's somebody who, this is a guy who has a, quite a story, right? Playing at Notre Dame, seventh round pick, like, and now he's turned himself into an NHL player. Like that's somebody who I think could uh, at least try to fill Philip Deneau's role. I don't think he necessarily can be at that same elite level uh, in terms of his defensive forwardness, but I think Jake Evans could at least take a stab at it. And I'd be very surprised if he was on the outside looking in heading into the season when it comes to the lineup. Going into round two against the Winnipeg Jets, you know, I thought the battle was really between the pipes between Carey Price and Connor Hellebuck. How much excitement do you get from a goaltending duel like those two? Um, when it's actually living up to the hype, then like, yeah, absolutely, right? Like that's what it is. Uh, that game two, I want to say that was where it ended in a one nothing game for the Canes, yep. and Carey Price straight up said like, yeah, it's fun. Uh, yeah, I I think goaltending duels like that can be really fun, especially when uh. You know, you're seeing both goaltenders make outstanding saves, obviously. Uh, it, I think, though, like, it seemed like the Winnipeg Jets, though. I'm still surprised at how they kind of laid an egg throughout that series. I know the Mark Shifley thing kind of took them out and, and took some wind out of their sails, but this is still the Winnipeg Jets. This is a team that I thought with the core that they had, they should at least be able to win a round or two. They got one over the Edmonton, only for them to get swapped, get swept by the Montreal Canadiens. Like, that was that was pretty surprising to me. How breathtaking was, you know, your perspective of the Shifley hit on Evans? Uh, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, from, from where I was watching, I guess in this room, actually, I was watching on my laptop. That was, that was not a good hit. Uh, I mean, Jake Evans clearly going to the net to score in that empty netter. Uh, Mark Shifley, you know, trying to say he's trying to prevent the goal. I really don't necessarily buy that. Like he, I think he went in with, uh, I mean, sure there was that, but like he went in with an attempt to, pretty much blow out Jake Evans. Uh, it, it wasn't necessarily the cleanest hit. And to see people kind of try to make it, you know, it seem as if it was like, I'm a bit surprised at those takes. It was, it was a pretty predatory hit. And uh, I think the NHL, I was surprised at how they went about suspending Shifley. I thought it'd be a situation where there'd be fewer games, but they ended up kind of getting it just right with the amount of games they suspended him for, I think. And that's something that the NHL hasn't gone right many times before. So it's, it does come as a surprise to many of us. Yeah, uh, it does. Uh, just considering the standards that have been applied for the Department of Player Safety, we all saw what Tom Wilson did to the New York Rangers. So I think because of stuff like that and because of uh, Tim Peel, the referee who got caught on a hot mic uh, talking about the makeup penalties he was trying to do, I think now, unless the NHL seriously looks at itself and seriously looks at the Department of Player Safety and seriously looks at the state of its, if it's officiating, fans are always going to have skepticism when it comes to uh, 
the way things are run in those departments, you know, because there, there's reason to be skeptical. There's reason to think that the NHL might get a call wrong. There's reason to think the NHL might not suspend a guy sufficiently or let a guy go scot-free like they've done with Tom Wilson. So yeah, it's, it's something that I think um, the NHL really needs to look into itself to do. But I think if the NHL even just put out a statement saying, Hey, we'll review uh, the referees for next season. Like that would be, the bar so low for them, like that would be celebrated enough because no one expects them to do anything. Before I get to my next point there, uh, you know, when you have Chris Lee who, you know, makes it to the third round and refs what was a horrible, horrible game four, I think, uh, you know, I, the standard of officiating is very, very low. Uh, I, I mean, look, I, a lot of people like to complain about Chris Lee. Yeah, he did not have a good game. Uh, he did. Yeah, he and his partner did not really have a good game in that series. Uh, it was pretty. And I'm not saying that it's like okay, wow, you know, obviously someone who follows the Canadians like there's only one side for Canes. No, there were there were Canadians hits that went like uncalled. Oh yeah, like, like it was brutal for both was, sides. It, yeah, it was it was nuts to see. It's frustrating to watch, you know. And people like to say how the standards change for the officiating in the playoffs. Like I just like to see something consistent between both teams because I I'm not really here to see the rules change between both sides. Like penalties should be called, you know. How much praise do you give for Nick Ehlers for what he did in the moment, kind of separating himself, almost creating a wall f- to protect Jake Evans from the ensuing scrum? Uh, yeah, it's a good thing for him to do. Uh, it was a pretty classy thing for him to do. He realized he was on the ground and he tried to protect a guy in that situation who wasn't even on his own team. So, yeah, I, I think he deserves a lot of praise for what he did. And there was a split second moment that showed, I think on Sportsnet, that the entire, you know, Canadian's bench really uh, went over to Jake Evans to console him. You know, in your opinion, did that moment show you how tight this locker room was? Um, I don't know if that moment was the moment that made, it think, made me feel like, wow, this locker room is tight. Uh, I'd sooner go back to how they responded after the, the Canadians uh, were down through one in the series against the Leafs. But I, I'd imagine for a situation like that, uh, in almost any locker room, if guys are 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 tightened enough, like they would probably do the same thing. It was a pretty dangerous hit, uh, but yeah, I think there were a couple other. I think it was among the moments that uh, Canadians players can always go back to and see how their team responded uh, after the fact. I wouldn't say it's the moment that brought the team closer together, but it's definitely something they can look back on and 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 be happy with how they responded after the fact. Going into round three against Vegas, it was kind of like the same storyline that we saw against Toronto and Winnipeg with how Montreal I haven't was... thought about all these series in weeks. Yeah, well, dude, <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. Like, I'm going through the whole season because this season was so remarkable for Montreal Canadiens fans. It's unreal. I should have brought water for this. That's my mistake. Uh, yeah, we're round three. Yeah, sorry. I don't yeah, cut off Well, you know, it's like the same storyline. You know, they're the underdog. Vegas is going to complete the sweep, just like how Toronto, just like how Craig Bunn said that Toronto was going to sweep the Habs. Then he got memed all over uh, Twitter for it, which, by the way, props to Habs for doing that. Uh, and, you know, with how Winnipeg did, you know, they're going to sweep the Montreal Canadiens. How do you think Montreal used this underdog status to their advantage? They did because, uh, look, I think when a lot of people like to go me against the world, I know Tyler Toffoli was saying something along those lines after the Winnipeg series. Like, I think they clearly realized that not a lot of people were picking them to do much of anything throughout the playoffs, let alone win series. So I think when you have that mentality, 
sometimes you're just kind of able to just kind of go out there and just kind of do what you need to do and not really worry about the pressure. If the Canadians would have bowed out in the first round, I think a lot of people would have been disappointed considering how the season started, but considering how the rest of the regular season went, I think a lot of people would be like, well, that's pretty much what we expect. And I think the fact that uh, not a lot of people were putting all that pressure on them, at least at the start, like, I think that kind of fueled them going forward. And people got to remember like that locker room that was there. I mean, we talk about Corey Perry and Eric Stahl. I think their veteran leadership was, was, you know, necessary for that group. Those are guys who have won Stanley cups before. So uh, I think they were leaned upon a lot for their experience in those moments. I also like to thank uh, GM Jim Benning for once again, messing up, you know, a huge free agent there with Tyrus Foley, leaving him on the market for three (laughs) days for the Habs to pick him up. Uh, That was huge for Mark Bergman to uh, acquire him. Because uh, obviously him and Caulfield and Suzuki have, you know, an incredible chemistry. I think there are people in Vancouver who are still cursing out Jim Benning as oh, we yeah. speak for for letting Tyler Toffoli go. I was very surprised that Tyler Toffoli was available for, for any team outside of the Vancouver Canucks, considering what he was able to do in Vancouver. Uh, if memory serves, I think Tyler Toffoli even scored like an OT winner against the Canadians when he was with the Vancouver Canucks uh, the year before. So at least I remember he had like a really good game at the Bell Center. I remember being at that game. But like Tyler Toffoli, like, is a good like scorer for like almost any team. You don't need him as a primary scorer, but like the Canadians were able to put him in a pretty good spot uh, in their top six. And I think he's fit pretty well. Uh, with the Montreal Canadiens so far. So, yeah, I, I, I can see a lot of Canucks fans uh, cursing themselves. Through this last year, uh, having Samantha Chang from the broadcast on his own time, I get a sense of how much Canucks fans really hate their own team. So seeing them still just, like, be really upset about losing Tyler Toffoli, it's really interesting to see. Jim Benning loves signing old veterans to very expensive contracts, to say the least. <laughs> hey, man, look, uh, he was able to clear out some of them to Arizona in, <laughs> with in, Arizona in ex- with in exchange for Oliver Ekman Larson and his salary. But Hey, exactly. So at least they did that. You know, Ducharme went down with a positive COVID test, which is another storyline to add into the whole Hab season, you know, how they had to also take it two weeks off because of, uh, you know, two COVID tests on their team. Did this, you know, do you think that added, uh, you know, just, I guess a bow on the whole season. I mean, you mean by add a bow on the whole season? What do you mean? Like, like, was that kind of, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, do you think that kind of added another storyline to this whole well, season? Yeah. How like, crazy think, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Obviously like, you know, when the head coach of a team has COVID during the Stanley Cup playoffs, especially a guy who like was, was really excited about the fact that his team was able to get, like within striking distance of the Stanley Cup final into the Stanley Cup final. Like it was really cool to hear Dominic Ducharme talk about the fact that he was like so happy about being named head coach of the Montreal Canadiens team and being able to take his team to the Stanley Cup final only for him to end up like watching games from home because of COVID-19. That being said, uh, Luke Richardson, I think did an admirable job in trying to just kind of pick up uh, where Ducharme left off in his steed. And while he will return as an assistant for this Canadiens team, uh, I, I think this run uh, might be enough for him to just consistently get consideration for NHL teams going forward personally. So, yeah, I, I think there was a silver lining to it where they, they saw that like the coaching staff that's still in place. I have to say, I look at Luke, I look at Luke Richardson in a completely different light after this postseason. I thought with all the changes that had been made uh, throughout the coaching staff, I thought Luke Richardson was going to end up gone at one point because I think of what the defense was like 
in, in previous years, like leading into this past year. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not sure what's, what's really going on here is Luke Richardson, the guy they still need on the bench. And after all that, they, they let Claude Julian go. They let Stefan Waite go. Luke Richardson is still there. And it turns out, yeah, they really needed Luke Richardson behind the bench. And that Stefan Waite firing was at a very odd time because Kerry Price won that game and he was fired that night. He was fired in the middle of the game. Yeah, like, he was. It, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty weird, but it just goes to show how desperate Mark Richman was to, to turn the team around. I think this was a general manager who realized at the beginning of the season that he needed his team to be competitive. That's why I think a lot of those moves were made uh, during the offseason. I can't think of another offseason where, where Bergerman was so busy or at least accumulated the quality of talent that he did uh, since he's been general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. Um, I think also that like just between that and, and seeing them kind of trend downward, like he, he even kind of invoked it himself. Like it kind of was a bit reminiscent of the year prior where they went on two eight game winless streaks. He could not afford to see his team do that. So yeah, it's the Stefan Waite thing was pretty unfortunate. Just It might be weird on the surface, but when you consider that uh, Mark Bergman was trying to make his team uh, a playoff team and not have them fall by the wayside, like what happened to them the season prior, I, I understand the method to the madness, but it, it was pretty clear to me that Mark Bergman was a bit desperate. I think during the Vegas series, Josh Anderson, who, you know, Mark Bergevin did acquire there in the one-for-one trade with Max Domi, really came alive driving the play for the Cock and Yemi line. You know, how valuable was that Anderson trade looking back at it? Um, He gives the Montreal Canadiens a power forward, something they haven't really had in a bit. And while I know that he kind of has the same patented drive-to-the-net move, uh, the Canes, outside of him, don't really have too many other players who could do that. So, he does provide a use to this team as a power forward. Uh, and he's been able to score some goals as a result of it. And he's also quick as well. A lot of people uh, were questioning his production in the playoffs, but I thought for, for a guy who uh, only kind of came alive in terms of goal scoring in like that third round, I thought he was doing some good things. He was a guy who was pretty good on the four check. He was always hitting guys. He was being aggressive. There was like one game in that Vegas series where, he uh, pretty much took a defenseman out of the play and Paul Byron took the puck and scored. Like he basically threw a pick, but like when Josh Anderson's doing stuff like that, it's kind of hard to complain about his production and, and all that, because if he's able to do little things like that, the Canadians are able to get some positive results as a result of it. I got it. Yeah. You know, and I love how Paul Byron was really a breakaway specialist for them this year. You know, we talk about the goal against, uh, you know, Toronto that really, in game one, that was really epic. You know, in Vegas, he had a couple where, you know, Flurry tried a diving poke check. He missed. Byron scores. He goes top cheese on Leonard. I mean, the guy was magic on breakaways. Uh, yeah, he has that speed. He has that quickness. And again, he's a guy who uh, just is part of that leadership core and someone who could do the, you could pretty much plug him on so many other different lines on this team. They're going to miss him as he'll be out with an injury pretty much up until Christmas. But uh, yeah, his his breakaway speed was on display for a lot of people uh, to see in the playoffs. How funny was it for Leonard to, you know, go out publicly and say his scouting report on Cole Caulfield and then a couple nights uh, after Cole Caulfield literally snipes one on, you know, Leonard top cheese, you know, when Leonard says, oh, yeah, Caulfield loves going top cheese. Uh, that was a pretty fun thing to have happen, uh, especially if all players to have that happen, Cole Caulfield to, to score that goal. So, yeah, it was pretty funny. 
uh, to see stuff like that. I'm always a big fan whenever little mini storylines like that come out. Now, I'm not even mad at, uh, let's say mad. I thought it was pretty cool to see Robin Leonard go out and say something like that. Like, I I, I get it. Like, players with dudes will do the whole, you know, stoic, focus on the next game talk. But it's fun to see athletes kind of go outside the box, even if it kind of bit Robin Leonard in the ass in the end. Yeah, and, you know, I think that with players, they have a book on goalies just like the way goalies have a book on players. It's, it goes both ways. Yeah, seriously, you know. So I, I, I think Robin Leonard was just pretty confident enough in himself to, to kind of put that out there. But Cole Caulfield has shown that at his young age, he's pretty confident in himself as well. So that goal he scored on Leonard going to the net and, and, and beating him top shelf and, and doing that little, like, gesture to the fans and celebrating, that to me – with Cole Caulfield, that's when I was like, okay, this kid really is it. Like that, I think for me is like the moment where I was like, okay, this kid, like he's, he's ready. Like he's somebody who is going to go through the growing pains of being an NHL player for the next how many years. And he just has that it factor. He's a star. He could be a star for this team. And the Canadians haven't had too many guys like him, which is why so many people were so enamored with him when he joined the team. So for something like that to happen and to have Cole Caulfield be the guy to beat Robin Leonard after what he said, like that's, that's really special for this team. I've completely blocked out the Stanley cup final against Tampa Bay. I don't even think about it, but you know, let's bring it up for discussion. Uh, what did Tampa Bay really do to stifle the Montreal offense? Because at times in the playoffs, Montreal offense was always like, you know, get hard on the four check, you know, get pucks in deep and then cycle it. But then Tampa was like, okay, we can play at any style you want us to play. Yeah, they could do that. But also the Montreal Canadiens just made so many mistakes mishandling the puck in their own end giveaways at the blue line or in the neutral zone or in their own zone and the Tampa Bay lightning with the players that they have, they have a killer instinct. The Canadians have had games before where they make mistakes and the other teams can't score for whatever reason, because Carey price is there and he makes a save or the other team is just having an off night, but the Tampa Bay lightning, they have talent from top to bottom. And if you make a mistake against this team, they've shown they'll, they'll make you pay. They'll capitalize on those opportunities. And there are just too many times where uh, the Montreal Canadiens just made a mistake and it kind of bit them in the ass. Like you go back to game two or yeah, game two or game three this year. Turnover. Uh, I'm thinking of well, that was a brutal turnover. But I was also thinking of uh, the Blake Coleman goal, which I think. Oh yeah, no, that was game two. Yeah, yeah, it was game two, and that came off of one of their better periods of of the of of the of the series at that point. They had tied the game, and you're thinking, okay, the Canadians could find themselves in a situation where they enter the third period needing a win with the momentum at their back, but allowing that goal from Blake Coleman just kind of broke their back and put them at a, at a disadvantage heading into the third period. And I believe that came off a turnover before uh, the lightning came back the other way and scored it's mistakes like that, that just kept putting the Canadians at behind the eight ball. You know, you talked a lot about the Habs injuries with Byron and Price out to start the next season, but Shea Weber is, you know, looking like he's going to retire. So as a reporter who covers the Montreal Canadiens, you know, what does it mean for you to cover a team that has had the leadership of Shea Weber, you know, for the last couple of seasons? It's really been interesting because obviously like the, the leadership for Shea Weber is one thing, but he'll always be tied to that PK Subban trade, which a lot of fans maybe not as vocal as they were years prior, but like there's still some of them who feel some kind of bitterness to it. And it's not Shea Weber's fault. Shea Weber tried, he's just he's the type of defenseman that he is and he served his role. It's just that, you know, he wasn't always the healthiest player, but he's up with the style of play that he plays is not necessarily something that's going to guarantee him a thousand games in the NHL. Right. I mean, he got to 
yeah, he got to that point. Yeah, like, it's did. pretty crazy for him that he was able to do that. That's a massive achievement in itself. And in fact, he was able to play through pain uh, in his foot, for example. Like, that's that's a big soldier move for him, man. But uh, I, I think for Shea Weber, what he was able to do this past year, this was probably the best year he's had as a Montreal Canadian, just with the fact that he was able to play the games he was able to play. And in the playoffs, he just kind of put himself out there and, and he really, uh, like, the, like, you just, the trade. I don't want to get into the debate of whether or not the Canadians won the trade or not, but you can understand why they made that trade with some of the performances that he put on in the playoffs. Like he, he was a steady presence for them uh, at different points in different games. And I, the leadership is one thing, but the identity of this team in, in terms of being a tough team to try to play against, there's a significant chunk of it that goes away with Shea Weber possibly not being able to play again, you know? So it's big shoes to fill for the Montreal Canadiens if they want to stay within that identity. Those, uh, you know, those tears hit differently, uh, you know, when Sportsnet showed him on the bench. Yeah. Uh, and also when they were, uh, all those players were going to him on the ice and, and hugging him, right? Like, it, I think a lot of those guys probably knew this yeah. was probably Shea Weber at the end. I think with the way they all kind of went around him, like, I mean, they didn't necessarily do the same thing with Price, right? And Gary Price is like, arguably the biggest reason why they got there in the first place. I think a lot of people in that locker room look at Shea Weber as like a far a father figure, a, a, a wily veteran who knows a thing or two about how to play at the National Hockey League at a high level. So there's a tremendous amount of respect from him from players in that locker room. So definitely think a lot of younger guys especially were, were affected uh, with carry with uh, sorry with Shea Weber not being able to hoist Lord Stanley's mug. And that might that that's probably gonna go down as, as his best chance, unfortunately. What do you make of Mark Bergevin's decision to expose Carey Price for the expansion draft? Like, what were your first reactions? I actually thought it was a pretty interesting and interesting move, and I thought it was pretty shrewd. Uh, it was a big gamble because the uh, the Kraken could have easily taken Carey Price and just said, hey, he's the face of our franchise. He's also a guy making over $10.5 million who's not necessarily the healthiest goaltender at the age of 34. So that would have been a serious thing for them to consider. And um, as I understand, like the Kraken very much considered this. There are a lot of people who felt like, yeah, the Kraken should take him. I was of the belief that if I was on the Kraken side, I probably wouldn't take him. And because of that, that's why I thought, okay, well, I think what Mark Bergevin was doing is low-key a genius move because if... Carey Price, I think I think in either way, it would have worked out for the Canadians. If Carey Price is gone, okay, they need to figure out their goaltending situation, but there are other cheaper options for them to kind of fill a hole to have a battery mate for, for Jake Allen. Because Caden Primo, I don't think he's necessarily ready to step in as an NHL backup just yet. He's better off just being an AHL starter for right now. Uh, and But in, if it got to that point, Carey Price's salary comes off the books, and then all of a sudden the Canadians could – easily go big game hunting for a replacement to, to put in the net, but also another big free agent out there if they so chose, or if they want to make a trade, uh, they could also accommodate more salary. But now they get to keep Carey Price, who, as I've mentioned before, keeps them in games. And he's, I mean, he'll go through the surgeries. He's already gone through the surgery in his leg, but if he comes out healthy, maybe they get another decent run out of him, right? Like it's, it's something that there's some pros and cons to, but I think Mark Bergevin's move of uh, leaving Carey Price unprotected, I think it was a pretty shrewd move. 
I think it was amazing. You know, looking back at it, uh, you obviously want to protect Jake Allen, right? Because, uh, you know, that his Jake Allen's been the best backup Carey Price has ever had, like you mentioned. And I think it was, you know, very important for Carey Price to have that, um, you know, that type of that caliber of goalie behind him just because of rest. And, you know, if the Kraken did choose Price's 10 and a half contract, well, then that's 10 and a half off the books for the Habs. That benefits them. And, you know, the price contract is always looked at as an albatross for Montreal. It's really been why Montreal is has been having difficulties getting these free agents. There's a lot of people look to, to sorry, carry price and saying like, okay, well, he's making 10 and a half. There's like 13, 14% of your cap locked up in one player. Well, it's funny you say that, but this is also a team that was able to swing a trade, Josh Anderson for Max Domi, and they they got Joel Edmonton, they they got Jake Allen, right? I'm trying to remember if it was, I think it was through trade, but still, like they they were able to get players. There's ways for them to do it. Uh, Mike Hoffman just joined the Montreal Canadiens as a free agent after the run that they had. Um, I I, I think as I, I I think there are a lot of factors that go into why a lot of people don't necessarily want to come to Montreal, but I don't know if Carrier Price's contract is as big of an impediment of, a, of an impediment uh, to the Canadians luring free agents as opposed to some of those other societal factors like taxes, language, pressure, media. Yeah, I, I think like a lot of NHL players, if, if Carey Price is a different market, they jump at the idea of playing with a guy who may go down in the Hall of Fame as a Hall, go down into the Hall of Fame as a Hall of Fame goaltender, right? So yeah, I, I don't think Carey Price's contract is the biggest thing uh a biggest reason as to why the uh, the gains haven't been able to lure free agents or, or other big off-season targets speaking of that language point there you know you are a media member and when you're in a bilingual you know place like quebec montreal is how important is it for you to know both languages it's pretty important because like i mean it's the, the french is the main language in quebec and uh you know you'll be in press conferences where uh like a french language player will speak in french and uh you'll Sometimes just to save yourself time, you might just take a quote from a uh, that was in French and just translate it to English if it's something that's pretty poignant to a story. Uh, also, it's just cool just to know languages. Uh, I Growing up, I went to like French immersion schools where I had classes that were in English and in French. Uh, and uh, actually, funny enough, through this pandemic, over the last few years through work as well, like I've been able to make more and more friends among Francophone media members. And like, I try my absolute best when I'm talking with them to like speak French and like, they'll hear me like speak English and they'll be like, oh no, we'll speak English. I'm like, no, don't do that. I want to speak French with you. And not just like, oh, like the proper French. Like I want to be able to use the same like joie, the same slang, you know, like talk with them in the same way, right? That's a whole part of it as well. Like it's one thing to kind of be like proper French and have all your conjugations, right? But like, I want to be able to like, you know, use French slang with like, other whole whole bunch of other like French friends, right? So it's pretty important to to be able to know both languages in the city. As we're closing off this interview here, do you have any advice for aspiring sports writers? Um, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, just be open to doing anything. Uh, don't say no to opportunities if you feel it's good for you. Uh, don't overexert yourself because you don't want to put yourself in a position where like. You go through college and then you're like, oh, my God, like I'm, I'm just already burnt out. Um, yeah, just try to make yourself uh, as malleable as you can to the business. You know, if you go into journalism thinking, oh, I just want to be a writer, like, well, that's a bit short sighted. You have to kind of accept the fact that, you know, you're writing, 
might lead to people on radio being like, hey, you'd be a great like guest host or or someone for a segment we want to do. And you got to make sure you're comfortable in front of a mic or TV, for example, as well, that, that those opportunities could come. Put yourself in a position where uh, you're open to doing different things through different mediums. And I think more opportunities could come to you as you try to enter the, uh, the workforce. And the other thing I'll say is just, it's not just what you know, it's who you know. Uh, be uh, not just like, you know, hey, let me get an email for an exec at Sportsnet or something and try to make a name for myself. Like when you go through your classes, uh, the person to your left or the person to your right of you sitting next to you, they might have similar ambitions. They might want to work in sports. You might think, hey, let's do a podcast together or hey, let's just, you know, uh, work on a blog or something together. And hey, if you both go on into your separate ways and you work in sports media and you might need help from one another, that might help down the road. So uh, connections are important. Just working hard at the end of the day is also important as well. You need to work hard and you need to put in some work outside of journals and classes. Like student media is really important, whether it's radio, whether it's TV, whether it's print, uh, even podcasting on your own time uh, for whatever you want to do. That also helps as well. So if you're trying to get into the field, put yourself out there, do as much as you can and put yourself in a position where uh, if you can be hired for a job, uh, they have something they can look at in your file before they hire you. Well, I'd like to thank again, Julian McKenzie for taking, you know, a big chunk of his time out to come on the podcast. Thank you again, Julian. Hey man, no worries. Uh, thanks so much for having me, man. This was really cool to do. Uh, best of luck, to, uh, best of luck for yourself going forward, man. This was really fun.